0: Welcome to the Game Before the Money Podcast. Brought to you by nbautographs.com. That's N as in Namath, B as in Bolitnikoff, nbautographs.com. The Game Before the Money Podcast. Celebrating pro and college football history, one legend at a time. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, brought to you by NBAutographs.com. Also, introducing our new transcription partner, That's Sonix.ai. That's S O N I X.ai. Really speeding up the workflow for the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm your host, Jackson Michael, writer of the Game Before the Money, Voices of the Men Who Built the NFL, published by the University of Nebraska Press, available at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and also on the University of Nebraska Press website. I'm also writer-director of We Were the Oilers the Love You Blue era, and that can be found on Amazon as well. In this episode, our guest is John Wooten. He's one of those guys, maybe you haven't heard his name. He played offensive line in the 1950s and 60s. John is a man who's been around a lot of history. You're going to hear some fantastic stories about his time playing with Jim Brown, playing for head coach Paul Brown. We'll also hear stories from John about his personal relationship with the legendary Ernie Davis winning the 1964 NFL championship with the Cleveland Browns and kind of some inside knowledge on the 1965 NFL championship game that really affected that game even before it started. He also was part of the famous Cleveland Summit with Muhammad Ali and now works for the Fritz Pollard Alliance, which works to create coaching and front office opportunities for African Americans in the NFL. John also worked as a scout for the Dallas Cowboys for many years under coach Tom Landry. He was born in Texas, but his family soon picked up and moved to New Mexico for better work opportunities. He says that Jackie Robinson was one of his early heroes, and even though John grew up in New Mexico, he even got to see Jackie play.
1: I'd seen him as a young guy uh, when he was with the Kansas City Monarchs. He was touring with them, and they would come through Carlsbad every year to play, and that just inspired me in sports and in life itself.
0: Early in his academic career, John attended segregated schools in Carlsbad, New Mexico. In the early 1950s, Superintendent Tom Hansen, Carlsbad High School Principal Guy Wade, and Coach Ralph Boyer provided a referendum to students. Would they support or oppose integrated schools? The students voted for integration, and John attended Carlsbad High School. He discusses his high school athletic career.
1: We won high school championship in basketball. Joe Kelly and I. We were the only blacks on the team and never played organized football at all. To be very frank and blunt, we had no idea how to put on the pads, but we were pretty athletic and we had good toughness, so we made the team. And I ended up starting as a sophomore.
0: John calls his high school coach Ralph Boyer one of the outstanding people in his life, and says he was a spitting image of Tom Landry. Wooten says one highlight of his career was setting up a meeting between Coach Landry and Coach Boyer. John is the type of guy whose roots remain fresh in his mind, and he likes to talk about how many opportunities football created for him. Wooten's high school career led to scholarship offers. I
1: had several offers from UCLA and Wichita State. Now keep in mind, there weren't very many schools that were integrated back then. The one that I really started take pride in is the offer to go to Dartmouth. And and the reason why I take pride in that is because I think that it opens up the idea that I was a pretty good student.
0: Wooten was the youngest of six children. He showed his mother where Dartmouth was on a map, and she said, that's a long way from home. Wooten's decision then swayed closer to home, to Colorado. His mother liked freshman coach Hugh Davidson, and John still keeps in contact with him to this day. Wooten played both offensive and defensive line for the Buffaloes.
1: The only time we left the field was at halftime or at a quarter break.
0: Colorado's head coach Dal Ward assembled solid talent for his team. Wooten played with other future pro stars like Boyd Dowler and Frank Clark on the Buffaloes. Colorado stood in position to earn a bowl appearance after a 5-2-1 start in 1956, They ran a single-wing offense led by Boyd Dowler. The ninth game in Colorado's 1956 campaign was at Utah after a key game against Missouri in which Frank Clark scored a clutch touchdown and blocked a punt. As the Buffaloes moved up the standings, Wooten also tells us the team also faced opponents off the field.
1: Frank Clark, who away here about a month and a half ago we were only two blacks on the team and we had gone over to play the university of utah and we get to the hotel in south lake and first they didn't want frank and i to stay in the hotel and coach ward and dean carlson our athletic director took the position that no they're going to stay here or none of us are staying here so then they wanted to cut us up from the other players. Now yeah, Ward said, no, Johnny, that's what you call me, is gonna room with Bob Salerno, who is another offensive lineman, and Frank is gonna room with Odisho, who is wide receiver.
0: The hotel finally backed down and allowed Colorado to stay together as a team and with their regular roommates. Colorado beat Utah, then closed out the season with a win at Arizona. Posting those two victories, placed them in the Orange Bowl against Clemson. Clemson's administration then sent a letter to Colorado. Clemson sent this letter that according to the state laws of South Carolina, the university institutions of South
1: Carolina cannot play against teams that have, quote, Negro. Carlson sent them back a letter, and in that letter he told them that they should take their problem to the Orange Bowl Committee because we were bringing our two Negroes to play.
0: When the Buffaloes arrived in Miami, a situation similar to the one in Utah played out. says he doesn't bring up these memories to spotlight the oppression he faced. These moments helped shape his life, his values, and him as a person. Colorado bumped Clemson with a 27-21 victory in front of the second largest Orange Bowl crowd at the time. The next season, Wooten made all Big 7 as a junior. The Big 7 later became the Big 8 when Oklahoma State joined. Colorado posted winning records in both John's junior and senior years, although the Buffaloes didn't play in a bowl game. Back then, there were very few bowl games. In 1959, there were only seven college football bowls, and only eight in 1958. Even many ranked teams missed out. John's individual play, however, attracted pro scouts. He had a nice offer to play professionally in Vancouver, Canada. Then he received a call from legendary coach Paul Brown of the Cleveland
1: Browns. I had a real good offer from Vancouver, Canada. And Paul Brown calls me. He said, first of all, let me ask you, have you signed with Vancouver yet? And I told him no, I had not. He said, Would you consider coming to the NFL if you were drafted? And I told him I would. And he said, well, if you will commit that, you won't sign until we get a chance to talk to you, I'll draft you. So he said, I'll do that. And he sent a guy to Boulder, Harold Seifried is his name, and...
0: negotiation, no lawyer to go over the contract, no agent, just sign on the dotted line.
1: It was just for the 59 season, and I've always done my own contracts. I never had agents so forth. I've always done my own. And I tell you, we had a tussle in that second year.
0: Wooten played in the college All-Star game, which pitted the NFL champion against a team of college All-Stars. The game was hosted in Chicago and was hugely popular at the time, one of the biggest football games of the year. The Baltimore Colts had defeated the New York Giants in the legendary 1958 NFL Championship, and now it was John's turn to face a defensive line that featured Big Daddy Lipscomb, Don Joyce. They were two Pro Bowl players, plus future Hall of Famers Gino Marchetti and Art Donovan. You
1: they there on campus at Northwestern. That's where we trained. Otto Graham was our coach. coach had just won the overtime game against the uh, Giants. So they're who we're playing. And Art Donovan ate my lunch. I mean, he beat me every way you could beat a guy, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe this is not where I belong. Maybe I should go get me a real good job. Paul Brown met with us the next morning and he told us how horrible we looked. Wasn't sure that we could play in this level and league and so forth. But he says to me, he says, you know, we're going to teach you how to pass block. Offensive line coach was a fellow named Fritz Heisler. He was about 5'6", if that tall. May have been 5'4". Weighed about 145 pounds. One of the Great offensive line teacher in this league and he took us showed us the drills and we worked and we worked and he says to me you got your tail beat last night horrible he said but you know what we are playing the Colts this coming season and we will have you ready you will have a chance to get to revenge
0: The Browns traveled to Baltimore in week six of the 1959 season. Big Daddy Lipscomb tried to intimidate Jim Brown before the game. When the bus
1: pulls up at the old park there in Baltimore, Big Daddy's beating on the window. I'm waiting on you, Jim Brown. I'm waiting on you. And he says, Daddy, how you been? You know, I'm waiting on you. You've been talking bad about me. Jim says, Daddy, I've never said anything bad about you. You know better than that. What's going on?
0: Wooten and fellow rookie lineman Dick Shafrath, who also was bowled over in the college All-Star game, yearned to prove themselves. Thanks to Big Daddy's pregame taunts, now Jim Brown was mad. In the locker room, Brown said, let's go beat their tails in. Well, that's the G-rated version. The regular season game provided historic excitement for fans. Johnny Unitas racked up nearly 400 yards passing and tossed four touchdowns. Hall of Famer Raymond Berry notched 156 receiving yards for the Colts. And Hall of Famer Lenny Moore added a 71-yard touchdown of his own, as defending champ Baltimore racked up 31 points at home. Most days during that time, that was good enough for the Colts to win at home, and usually by a wide margin. But an angry Jim Brown scored one touchdown, then another, and then another. At game's end, Brown had rushed for five touchdowns that day, powering Cleveland to a 38-31 victory. Jim Brown's five rushing touchdowns nearly tied the single game record of six still held by Ernie Nevers. To this day, only Cookie Gilchrist, James Stewart, and Clinton Portis have matched Brown's five rushing touchdowns in one game. Now, I can hear some of you asking, didn't Gale Sayers score six touchdowns in one game? Yes, he did. But one was a punt return and one was a reception. Dub Jones also scored six touchdowns in a game, four rushing and two receptions. That game in 1959 marked the third time that Jim Brown had rushed for four or more touchdowns in a single game. And he would do it twice more in his career. He led the NFL in rushing every single year of his career, except for one. Jim
1: Brown wasn't like anybody. Listen, I have looked, I've scouted. There's never been a back like Jim Brown. Like I tell people, good Lord, i will do this one time and I'm not going to ever do it again. That's who Jim Brown
0: is. Wooten notes that Jim Brown excelled at many sports.
1: Jim Brown had probably a minus one or two handicapped golfer when he was playing.
0: Although Brown posted incredible individual stats, Wooten says statistics aren't the first thing that come to mind when he thinks of Jim Brown.
1: The thing that I remember about Jim is how much of a team player he was back in
0: In the book The Game Before the Money, Hall of Fame quarterback Sonny Jurgensen discussed how quarterbacks called their own plays in those days. The Cleveland Browns were the exception to the rule, and coach Paul Brown called the plays. Paul Brown experimented with a radio headset in the quarterback's helmet in the mid-1950s before the practice was banned by NFL commissioner Burt Bell. Nowadays, NFL coaches radio almost every play to the quarterback. In John's day, Paul Brown alternated John and Gene Hickerson at guard to bring plays into the huddle.
1: Back in the old days, you had to bring the plays in and out. Because, number one, if you signal them, then if they got a sharp scout sitting up in the box with his binoculars on, he can tell his team what that play is because he picks up signal so paul brown went to the messenger guard so that's gene hickerson and I. so when we come in the huddle we call the entire play in other words we'd say split six 33 go or 45 wing on two or on ready
0: set although paul brown coached in cleveland a long time and previously had coached at ohio state that didn't mean he enjoyed ohio winters think about of in Cleveland in
1: November or early December. And we're at Old Egg Park where they used to play baseball. That's where we practice. It's a small car, and he has driven it up on the field because it's so cold, he didn't want to be out there in the cold. So he's sitting in the car, and Hickerson and I would have to come and kneel down by the car so he could tell us to play to take to the huddle. He, he rolled the window down just enough to tell us what the play is, and then he rolled the window back up. And then, so that he could see the play, he would tell you to take it on one knee. You're kneeling down by the car so that he can see the play that he just
0: called. Ernie Davis won the 1961 Heisman Trophy. Like Jim Brown, he attended Syracuse University. Paul Brown traded Bobby Mitchell to Washington for the rights to Ernie Davis, the number one overall pick in the 1962 NFL Draft.
1: And the reason why Paul Brown made the trade, go back to Green Bay with Horning and Taylor, right? And that's what he saw with Jim and Ernie. Because number one, it was a big back that could catch the ball
0: and run with the football and do all those things. And Jim was, you know, I don't have to tell you about Jim Brown. Like John, Davis played in the college All-Star game.
1: He went to the college All-Star game just like we all did. And he has to have a tooth pulled. And he had the tooth pulled, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. That's when they realized that he had sickle cell leukemia.
0: Jim Brown and Ernie Davis were close, and new Browns owner Art Modell asked Jim Brown to visit Ernie. John also became friends with Davis.
1: Ernie Davis was like... Jim's younger brother. Jim loved this guy. So when they bring Ernie back from Chicago, he's in the hospital there in Cleveland. And Jim says, Art Modell wants me to go down and see Ernie, and I'd like for you to go with me. So that's how me and Ernie got, all of us got to be good
0: friends. Although Davis tragically never played for the Browns, Wooten and other Browns played on a basketball team with him. We
1: had a whole basketball team, Michael, that played. In the off season, played basketball around the Northeast Ohio, over in the West Virginia, up in Buffalo. We'd play high school faculties so that you could raise money for the school. Ernie played basketball with us, and you got to know him because we're driving, see late at night back from games and so forth, and you really got to know this guy. And he never, never heard him say. This is tough. I got a bad deal here. As the old folks say, never one mumbling word. He was upbeat, joking. I'm going to get
0: me 25 tonight. You guys get what you want. Uh, This is what you heard. John tells us about the last time he saw Ernie Davis.
1: We would hang out at a, a lobby lounge called the Carnegie. And if you were in town, you went by there for lunch because That's where everybody went for lunch. I never will forget it. It was a Thursday. He came in. He said, I'm going to go home for a few days. And he walked through that whole place shaking hands and saying goodbye to everybody. He knew that apparently they had told him he only had two or three days left. You know what I mean? He could not have been home more than 48 hours. And we got the word that he had passed. Modell got a chartered plane and took the whole team to his funeral. I tell people all the time, Ernie Davis was one of the great angels that lived on our planet. And he was too good of a person for the good Lord to keep him down here too long. So he took him back to where he belonged in heaven.
0: The Browns retired Ernie Davis' number shortly after he passed away. The trade that brought Ernie Davis to Cleveland sent Bobby Mitchell to Washington. Mitchell had been Jim Brown's roommate. As a result, Jim asked John to room with him.
1: Back then, you had the right, if you were a veteran, to select who you wanted to room with.
0: won on the road at San Francisco on the last weekend of the 1962 season and finished 7-6-1. Shortly thereafter, owner Art Modell fired the legendary Paul Brown and replaced him with assistant coach Blanton Collier. John tells us the backstory, which involves a discussion between Jim Brown and Art Modell on a long late night flight home to Cleveland after the game in 1962 and instead
1: of us coming back home from San Francisco to Cleveland on a jet it's a prop plane which means that we will be up there all night long right so Modell comes to the back of the plane and they get into a discussion and Jim says I'm ready to get out of here man Archer what do you mean man we're running this same old junk over and over, and we don't have any creativity. Teams know what we're going to run. The minute we get out there, says, I'm out of here. I'm glad my contract and get out. That went all the way through the plane. Guys are now waking up, right? going well, what? Jim's going to leave. Two days later, after we got back to Cleveland, Modell fired Paul. But he elevated Bland Collier.
0: The Browns improved to 10-4 and 4 in 1963 narrowly missing the NFL championship game in an era when only two teams made the playoffs. Jim Brown rushed for over 1,800 yards and averaged over 133 yards per game, both career highs. Wooten explains that under Collier, Jim Brown had more latitude and even had some say in play calls.
1: Jim has the best analytical mind of any player I've ever been around. It would blend. If the play came in, he had the right, as it related to him, to say, yes, let's run it that way or no, give us this. In other words, he'll say, give me a
0: 36 quick or give me a 45 go. Let's run that from opposite rather than split. In 1964, the Browns drafted two future Hall of Famers, Leroy Kelly and Paul Warfield. Kelly came in and contributed more on the special teams with punt,
1: kickoff returns. Warfield came in and immediately came a starter at the split end opposite Gary Collins at flanker. Other than Paul Warfield's great, great pass catching ability, is his blocking ability. When we went to what we call split formation weak side, we could bring Paul Warfield all the way down and he could block that weak side line.
0: In 1964, the Browns finished 10-3-1, and this time, they qualified for the NFL championship game. They faced a powerful and heavily favored Baltimore Colts team, coached by Don Shula. And that brings us to another Colts pre-game off-field mistake of taunting Jim Brown. Only this time, it wasn't by anyone playing in the game.
1: So we're sitting there listening to music, Jim and I. About four or five members of the band come in and they play caps right in our face and we didn't say anything. And we got up afterwards, after we finished listening to what we wanted to hear on the jukebox there. And we get in the car, Jim is driving, and he said, You know you know something, just we'll the way you know.
0: Jim Brown said we're going to beat the living pants off of them. Well, that's the G-rated version.
1: You end up with, what, 110 or 112 yards in that championship game.
0: Browns quarterback Frank Ryan threw three touchdowns to Gary Collins, and the Browns stunned the NFL world with a 27-0 victory at home to win the 1964 NFL championship. Wooten says three unsung heroes deserve major credit for the win.
1: Galen Fisk, our captain, linebacker from Kansas, and Bernie Parrish. I'm going to give those three people credit. got to give Blaine Collier credit. He had us so ready, boy. Let me tell you. Blaine Collier had us saying very simple, you cannot make a mistake. you got to play perfect football. And you can play it if you concentrate on the details of what you're supposed to do. In that game, just in the first half, they ran a screen to Lenny Moore that was set perfect. And Galen Fisk came under it and
0: blitz and shot up, submarined it, and ended up tackling Lenny Moore for what was going to be a touchdown and end up with a five-yard loss. Wooten says the game turned around on that play. The Browns' rugged defense also led by defensive back Bernie Parrish, nullified the Colts' offense. The game was scoreless at halftime, but the Browns erupted for 17 points in the third quarter and tacked on another 10 in the fourth for a 27-0 victory. Cleveland returned to the NFL championship game the next year in 1965, this time sporting an 11-3 regular season record. Conditions at Green Bay's Lambeau Field were extremely muddy, coating players in mud and slush. The day before,
1: it was just as cold and beautiful as you wanted to be, but cold, but sun shining and everything. And overnight, this big snowstorm come through there. And the field wasn't covered because it had been so beautiful. That Saturday afternoon, when everybody worked out, they didn't cover the
0: field. The Packers prevailed 23-12 in the sloppy conditions, powered by a combined 200 yards rushing from Paul Horning and Jim Taylor. To see how muddy the conditions were, I encourage you to search online for the January 10, 1966 cover of Sports Illustrated or for images of the 1965 NFL Championship game. The Browns contended with more than the Packers running game and the mud on the field that day. John tells us a behind-the-scenes story that makes one think about factors surrounding big games and how they may affect individual and team performances and outcomes. We stand up at Appleton, Wisconsin at a Holiday Inn, and the word comes that we need to leave
1: earlier than what our schedule called for because the snowstorm was destroying the traffic, even though we had a police escort. The road between Appleton and there was just a two-lane highway and cars all over the place, backwards and turned over. And the game was sort of started 1. I think we ended up starting the game about 3.30 or so because we couldn't get there. We lost the game with Green Bay right on that bus because you saw the team go from a quiet type of readiness to now... We must have been on that bus four or five hours. We lost that game right there.
0: The 1965 NFL Championship marked Jim Brown's last game. The three seasons with Blanton Collier as head coach produced three of his top four season yardage totals in his career. And Jim Brown retired in his prime. I asked John if there was one run that stood out in his mind when he thought of Jim Brown. We're playing Dallas here in the Cotton Bowl. Cowboys used
1: to play, right? We run what we call a split 19. And when we get out there, as we're coming around the corner, we're about on the eight-yard line going in. The cornerback is up, the safety is up, and the inside linebacker is coming. And Jim lowers his right shoulder, knee about three inches off the ground, and just drags Two or three guys into the end zone for a touchdown. We'll walk into the sideline and he said, Whoop, well, you know what made that play go? And I said, I have no idea. He said, I saw that you never gave up. He described that as his best run ever.
0: Although Jim Brown retired early, he still retired as the NFL's all time leading rusher. He also stayed in the limelight working on social issues. In June of 1967, Brown organized a meeting of some of the nation's top black athletes, including Bill Russell, Willie Davis, Bobby Mitchell, and a man who at that time was a college basketball star known as Lou Alcindor. He would later become known as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. At the heart of the meeting was Muhammad Ali's decision to declare himself a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. Ali's move was highly controversial at the time, He was stripped of his boxing titles and convicted of violating military draft laws. Ali stood his ground, stating he objected to war based on his religious beliefs, and therefore he had a right not to comply with the draft board. The Supreme Court overturned his conviction in 1971, but in 1967, the champ faced harsh criticism. John also attended that meeting, which would become known as the Cleveland Summit. He explains his role in the meeting and takes us inside the doors. The Ali Summit is one of the outstanding things that I felt that we did. When Ali didn't step forward in Houston
1: in June of 67, Jim called and said, get the guys together. We need to support the champ. This is the exact words.
0: John says that he and Jim Brown first became friends with Muhammad Ali when Ali was known as Cassius Clay. They met in Miami as the Browns prepared for the Playoff Bowl, a game no longer played that determined third place in the NFL, and while Ali was training for his first bout with Sonny Liston. For the Cleveland Summit, Wooten was given the task to call everyone and invite them to the meeting. And you can easily find photos of that meeting online. And those
1: guys- on that picture are the guys that i called and the most outstanding thing about that to me not one guy said who's going to pay for this they asked one simple question what time is the meeting and where is the meeting going to be
0: Jim Brown was part of a collective that helped promote Muhammad Ali and earn revenue from things such as closed-circuit television broadcasts of Ali's fights. With Ali faced with the possibility of going to jail and both the boxing community and the U.S. government taking actions to restrict him from boxing, Ali's choice to not follow draft orders put him and others in strained economic positions. Furthermore, Ali's decision was very unpopular. There are even accounts of Jackie Robinson publicly criticizing him. So, although Jim Brown said we've got to support the champ, the closed-door meeting wasn't exactly a love fest and people patting Ali on the back. Rather, Ali was asked some serious questions. If we sit with the champ, listen to him, Russell and Curtis McClendon and those guys,
1: They drilled him, and the champ stood firm with one statement over and over. I am an ordained black minister of the nation of Islam. I don't believe in wars. I don't believe in killing. And as a minister, I'm going to stand on that ground. And he says... that I should go into special service, you tell me what you're feeling that I should do. Because I feel that I shouldn't go to service. And we say we stand with you, champ.
0: Although that was an unpopular stance at the time, history has redeemed Muhammad Ali. Not only did the Supreme Court confirm his right to be a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, But he's held as one of the most beloved and revered American athletes of the 20th century, if not of all time. Now he's held as one of the great Americans of all time. At his funeral, you had everybody there from every nation and across the world, right? But that June afternoon in Cleveland and the support Ali received there stood as a meaningful moment that the champ would never forget. together and bringing his
1: life totally around. and he gave Jim his Muhammad Ali humanitarian award that he does every year and he wanted me and Russell and Bobby Mitchell to come and be a part of it. This was about two years ago before he
0: died. John had a goal to play 10 years in the NFL. hearing in spots on the Pro Bowl roster. He won a championship, but after his ninth season he was released by the Browns. His being released by the Browns had nothing to do with his play, however. A teammate who organized an annual charity golf tournament that John had previously won told John that he wasn't going to invite any black players to future charity golf tournaments. John's teammate said the reason was an incident where the country club's pro shop employees accused two African-American Browns players of stealing items from the pro shop. John offered to assist to get to the bottom of things and pleaded with his teammate not to turn the situation into a racial confrontation. The teammate, however, refused to work out the situation with John and considered the matter closed by not inviting any African-American players to the charity golf tournament.
1: So Modell overreacted and he waived both of us. So now, all of a sudden, I've gone from an old... Pro Pro bowler, I can't get a job in the NFL.
0: John says he received word that well-known attorney Louis Nizer would represent him pro bono should he decide to bring a case against the NFL and the Cleveland Browns. Now, Louis Nizer has a long list of accomplishments that include winning a case for broadcaster John Henry Falk, that pretty much shut down the Hollywood blacklist spawned by the age of McCarthyism. Nizer also wrote the foreword to the Warren Report and also had a hand in creating the Motion Picture Rating System as general counsel for the Motion Picture Association of America. John tells us the story of what his options were and how things resolved.
1: The commissioner calls. Pete Lozell and says, What's going on? so forth. I said, well, Commissioner, I don't think I've done anything wrong. and I've been waived, and I'm not being picked up by any team. And I'm not going to get run out of this league over something that I didn't do anything wrong, didn't do anything to hurt the NFL. And I'm not going to be punished by the NFL by not playing football. When I was just voted one of the top guards in the league and to the all NFL team and so forth. He says, Well, I'm on the west coast right now but I'm here for can know how for the Hall of Fame game that they have there every year. Let's talk when I get there. So
0: John says he and the teammate have long since made amends. John played one season in Washington, completing a 10-year NFL career. In 1975, he became director of pro scouting for the Dallas Cowboys and stayed in that role until 1991. He then joined the Philadelphia Eagles front office before joining the Baltimore Ravens, where he stayed until 2002. He is now chairman of the Fritz Pollard Alliance which plays a big part in working with the NFL to create head coaching opportunities as well as front office and scouting opportunities for minority candidates.
1: When I came in the league in 1959, there was Cleveland Browns. There wasn't a black coach anywhere, period. The only blacks you saw in locker rooms anywhere.
0: John said a group that included him, Tank Younger, and Bobby Mitchell worked with Roselle to establish a program that allows coaching staffs from historically black colleges and universities to attend NFL training camps and sit in on practices and meetings. John says the program has proved itself to be very important and is still in effect to this day.
1: And this was called the Black Coaches Visitation Program. That now is called the Bill Walsh Fellowship, but that program started under Roselle
0: back in the late 70s, early 80s. Now, those of you who really know your NFL history might have put together that Tank Younger had a great career for the Los Angeles Rams, helping them win the 1951 championship. And of course, Pete Roselle worked in the Rams front office before being named commissioner. So that connection between Younger and Roselle really helped move things forward and bring things together. I'll post a link to the NFL's webpage for the Bill Walsh Diversity Fellowship Program on the Game Before the Money's Facebook page. I'll also post an NFL webpage link to the Nunn-Wooten Scouting Fellowship, named after John and Pittsburgh Steelers scouting legend Bill Nunn. The goal of that program is to get former NFL and college football players into the scouting profession. At the beginning of this episode of the Game Before the Money podcast, I mentioned that John Wooten might not have been a person with whom you were familiar, but let's think about it. John came in the league in 1959. This year, 2019, means that he's been around the NFL for 60 years. You've heard the comment on the show, NFL means not for long. John completely contradicts it. And he gratefully reflects on his life and his relationship to the game. People ask me why I love the game so. Because
1: every single thing I have today came as a result of my playing football. The woman that I'm married to here is because we met in Cleveland. So as I said, football has given me a good life. I love what it's done for me. I take great pride in it. And this is why I do what I do, you know.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of the Game Before the Money podcast. Please like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thegamebeforethemoney. You can also follow us on Twitter at Game This podcast is brought to you by nbautographs.com. That's N as in Namath, B as in Balitnikov, NBautographs.com. Special thanks to our new transcription partner, Sonics. Opinions expressed on this program and any podcast of The Game Before the Money don't necessarily match the opinions of anyone else, including our sponsors.